All content published by Your Brain on Science is solely the opinions of the authors and does not reflect the opinions of any parties affiliated with them or any additional third parties. Welcome, welcome to another episode of Your Brain on Science. You're stuck with me, Elena, today as we move into the second episode in our series focusing on psychedelics and substance use disorders. Last week, I talked about the anti-addictive nature of psychedelics and just briefly highlighted some of the key concepts and hypotheses or hypotheses of why these compounds may be useful in treating substance use disorders. And so today we're going to talk about these ideas in a more clinical context with our special guest, Dr. Albert Garcia Rameau, a clinical researcher and assistant professor at Johns Hopkins University Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research, as well as a guest researcher at NIDA. So welcome, Dr. Garcia Rameau. I'm really thrilled to talk with you again and have you on the podcast today. Yeah, great to be here. Um, So as I do with all my guests, I'll just ask you to give a little bit of background on where you started and how you got involved in psychedelic research. Sure. Yeah, I was not actually studying psychedelics um, in graduate school. I was kind of more interested in um, spiritual experiences and how those impacted mental health. Um, And this went back a long ways to my undergraduate days, and I had been studying both, you know, brain sciences and cognitive neuroscience and regular, you know, Western psychology, um, but also developed a meditation practice, started studying uh, Eastern spiritual traditions, Taoism, Buddhism, Hinduism, and those things seem to be talking about similar stuff, mind, consciousness, um, but taking very different angles on that. Um, So, you know, it was really undergraduate before when I started getting interested in um, what the mind was and how mind states worked and altered states of consciousness. And obviously this is tied up in lots of different fields. If you start looking at anthropology or uh, different types of cultures that have a different orientation towards altered states and, and meditative practices and even use of psychoactive substances and rituals. Um, so I hadn't been thinking about that area for some time. Um, But when I went to graduate school, um, I was also really impacted by the work of uh, humanistic psychologists, Abraham Maslow. Um, They were kind of also looking at psychology, you know, Western psychology from a different standpoint, uh, in the sense that they were trying to understand some of the good stuff that could happen in people and not just focus, you know, very squarely on the pathology, which a lot of prior psychology had focused on pathology, um, you know, mental health conditions that are often thought of as disorders or illnesses, which may just simply represent variations on, uh, you know, human and mental and emotional states in my mind. Um, Also, I noticed, you know, in graduate school that those types of experiences could sometimes be detrimental to mental health. People could have, um, you know, psychotic types of breaks or other experiences uh, in that vein that led to problems for them. And so, you know, that was really my entree where I was studying in graduate school. My, you know, dissertation work was focused on self-transcendence as a particular type of experience and uh, where people felt connected to something outside of themselves, something bigger than themselves, and also as a sort of personality construct. Uh, And that was what I was working on. Um, but that did interface eventually with psychedelics, uh, specifically because um, when I was asking people about transcendent experiences that they had, uh, psychedelic use was one of those. It was among uh, several types of experiences people described to me. Uh, and that led me to get in touch with uh, some of the researchers at Hopkins really serendipitously because uh, we were both attending a conference back in t- 2012. Uh, when I was still wrapping up my dissertation and I was talking about what I was doing and um, Dr. Catherine McLean was there talking about what she had been doing with psilocybin and uh, openness and personality. So uh, we met there and talked more about research and then that led us to 
uh, stay in touch and eventually to me uh, coming over here to Baltimore and start working with the group here. Uh, and that was really uh, focused on clinical application of psychedelics. So if you use high dose psilocybin alongside counseling or therapy, you know, was that going to be helpful for treating different types of conditions, including things like substance use disorders? Mm -hmm. Awesome. And I like that your background is a little bit different than most of the people that I talk to, right? So uh, more, like you mentioned, more focused on this transpersonal psychology, meditation, um, and other aspects. So do you find that this background gives you a, like a unique or alternative perspective to some of this psychedelic assisted therapy and how it's reported on? Yeah, I, I mean, it definitely is a different vantage point from a lot of my colleagues who are coming either from uh, really reductionistic, mechanistic, um, preclinical molecular biology type backgrounds. And they're looking specifically at things like molecules and cells and circuits. And, and I think that's great and very valuable. Uh, but, you know, I was looking at phenomenology, uh, phenomenological experiences and how these, you know, play out in the mind and how, um, you know, these affect people in terms of their mental health and how they perceive that. Uh, and so I, I had a kind of a different starting point, um, you know, same with a lot of the medical practitioners that, uh, you know, psychiatrists, psychotherapists, um, you know, they often are looking again at the pathology and health is sort of more like, well, if somebody's healthy, then we don't have to worry about them. But yeah, I think I had been interested from the get go on what could make people healthier, even if they were already healthy. Mm -hmm. And so that I think is a somewhat of an outsider perspective in a school of medicine specifically where i landed yeah uh, but it's been helpful because the types of experiences that people have with these high dose psychedelics are outside the box um, for a lot of medical and mental health providers um, or oftentimes they would be framed in terms of things like psychosis or delusional thinking um, whereas you know having this sort of different viewpoint uh, this different perspective can be helpful to contextualize, you know, what's going on when people are going through these um, psychedelic experiences and trying to make sense of them. Yeah, definitely. And, and that kind of brings me into also kind of covering some of the historical and important aspects of psychedelics. Um, so before we get into general concepts related to like substance use disorder, I wanted to ask, you mentioned that you studied non-Western types of, you know, like meditations and stuff like that. So can you just discuss a little bit some of that historical and important context of psychedelics in some of those other non-Western or indigenous populations? Yeah, so I'm not an expert in that area. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not an archaeologist or historian. Um, and the amount of variety in terms of shamanic practices, altered states of consciousness, and different psychedelic use across culture is just this vast field that I'm not well versed in. Um, but just the, the really basics is that people in the Americas and people in other parts of the world were certainly using these types of substances spanning back hundreds or thousands of years. And we have both archaeological evidence, but you know, I actually pulled up a slide um, that I have here for a talk I'm giving next month, and it's specifically about uh, in the 1550s or so, uh, this monk, uh, he's a Franciscan friar named Bernardino de Sahagún. So he's a Spanish fellow who had gone over um, to conquer New Spain, which was Mexico and uh, you know other parts of Central and South America. Um, but he was actually a really interesting guy. He went down there and wrote this in, you know voluminous uh, kind of history of the area and the people there. So he got really interested in the Aztec culture that he encountered learned the language, which was Nahuatl, um, and was able to speak to these people, interview their elders, try to understand their uh, their worldview um, as part of his missionary practice. Um, and he also wrote this big uh, book called the Florentine Codex, which uh, talks about the history and uh, all that was going on there and what they found when they arrived. And, you know, one of the things he talked about was the Aztec use of what they called Teo Nanacatl, um, which was uh, the divine flesh, which was the psilocybin containing mushrooms. And he wrote that they seem to be intoxicating. They seem to cause visions and provoke sensuousness in the people that use them. Um, they were taken in these nighttime ceremonies where they would also take chocolate and honey. Um, 
and that they seem to be used for divinatory or healing purposes uh, at these ceremonies where people would dance, sing, and weep, or sometimes just sit silently as if in a meditative mood. And that once these ceremonies were over, uh, the effects were off and people would come back together and talk among themselves about the visions they had seen. And so this is what he wrote, you know, back in the 1500s about encountering uh, traditional psilocybin use among the people of the Americas. And so if that was happening in the Aztec culture, you can just imagine all the different variants of that with also different types of psychedelics, um, you know, San Pedro cactus, mescaline uh, from, uh, you know, other types of plants and uh, sources, you know, it's probably a really rich tapestry that I don't know that much about, but it's fascinating to think about the fact that what we're doing now in this sort of medical therapeutic context sounds very similar to what people were doing way back when, you know, in, in different cultures. And uh, so that there is this sort of historic link to uh, indigenous groups who were obviously found these uh, substances and, and were using them a long time ago. Yeah. And, and I really like that um, you brought up the, I forget, what did you say his name was? Sorry, the uh, Bernardino de Sahagún is his okay. name. Uh, yeah. It's cool because I feel like a lot of times you really only hear about the story of like Maria Sabina and the exploitation of her and you don't hear about anything like before that in like the history of like the Americas and, and the mushroom and stuff like that. So, Well, actually, um, you know, I was looking into this more before the interview, but the missionaries there were trying to convert everybody, the indigenous people to Christianity. And uh, and so what a lot of the non-Christian indigenous people did was just sort of adopt Christianity, but then they um, really were trying to practice their own spiritual and religious tradition under the guise of using different Christian saints and other, you know, ritual, like, you know, using the cross and so forth in churches. Um, but as a result, a lot of things that were uh, part of their culture, including use of these types of mushrooms, had to go underground because they were not necessarily criminalized, but they were considered heathen or pagan types of, of rituals. And so why you don't hear much about it is because people stopped talking about it openly, especially to outsiders or Westerners and Europeans that were coming over mm -hmm. because they saw that as basically uh, something that was not in alignment with their Christian values. And, mm -hmm. and so, yeah, it was very much kind of a underground thing that was being practiced among those cultures sort of secretly uh, for a long time. Uh, after colonialism. And interestingly, yeah, in 1955, when Gordon Lawson showed up uh, in Mexico and found Maria Sabina, who then introduced him to these mushrooms, you know, he was saying that he was interested in them and not going to reveal her identity or anything. But, you know, years later, um, he did do that in a, in a big magazine story that uh, then, yeah, it caused a lot of problems for sure. For her, she ended up getting arrested. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so there was uh, a, a bad fallout from that situation. Um, but, you know, even before that, um, Western scientists were actually, and, and medical researchers were interested in psychedelics um, because although Maria Sabina introduced Wasson to the psilocybin containing mushrooms in 1955, uh, Albert Hoffman had already discovered LSD in 1938 and then realized that it had these psychoactive properties in 1943. So a lot of people started studying LSD not long after that. And even before that, people were already, um, including, you know, uh, notable Western psychologists and scientists like Havelock Ellis were writing pieces in popular uh, science in 1897 about mescaline and auto-experimentation where they would take mm -hmm. the the mescaline and use it and talk about it. So, um, you know, this was something that was of interest for, you know, at least in the 19th century, if not earlier. Um, but I think, you know, what happened in the 20th century was really kind of uh, the big starting point for a lot of where we find ourselves today. Yeah. And so do you think that there's a lot of inspiration from like how these different cultures use psychedelics to inspire how we're using them as treatment. You kind of alluded to that, but just thinking about how they were taken in those settings versus how we kind of do it now, a lot of it was very group oriented and you don't really see a lot of like group therapy kind of 
stuff with psychedelics. So No, uh, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the current work is focused squarely on individual therapies using psychedelics. Um, there have been um, more work in that direction, more research studies kind of growing in the area of doing group preparation, group integration, and then, you know, having people taking the drugs separately with their own uh, facilitators. But yeah, the, the group or communal aspect, I think, is, um, you know, very much in line with the indigenous traditions. And you see it, too, in churches like Santo Daime, mm -hmm. where they're using uh, ayahuasca, for instance, in a group setting. Um, so there's there's definitely differences and there's also similarities. Um, but I wouldn't say necessarily that what we do um, has a, a lot of similarity with those early practices, mainly because our approach um, really grew up out of laboratories like Spring Grove and work at Saskatchewan, work, you know, in uh, hospitals like in Europe where Stan Groff was working, um, where people were trying to figure out how to use these as part of modern medicine. And, and so that does look quite a bit different from uh, what you'd imagine it, kind of traditional practices were in indigenous cultures. Yeah, definitely. And that kind of brings us perfectly into, you know, the use of psychedelics today is in a variety of ways. Like um, we're not just talking for pathology related stuff or for treatments, but it's also recreational and spiritual still to this day. Um, and I guess, so I'm, I touched on this in the previous episode when I was talking about um, just the anti-addictive nature of psychedelics, but how um, do you think like the patterns of use in humans and the drug effects themselves kind of play a role in this anti-addictiveness that uh, people kind of give psychedelics? Um, well, I mean, I don't think it's, you know. I say anti-addictive in like quotes. Yeah. And I mean, I would <laughs> say I don't think it's something that people give the drugs. I think the drugs have these properties inherently. Um and for a couple of reasons, some biological and others more psychological in nature. Um, but yeah, the drugs themselves, they have a lot of different uh, pharmacological properties that don't lend themselves to um, human dependency syndromes. I mean, even if you look at something like uh, the DSM, which is sort of the canonical uh, you know, encyclopedia of mental disorders uh, in psychiatry, looking specifically at hallucinogen use disorder and the way that uh, different types of substance use disorders are classified, you know, the classic psychedelics just don't produce some of the criteria that are needed to get one of these use disorders, uh, specifically withdrawal symptoms. And so when you're taking something like LSD or psilocybin, um, you don't create, you know, usually crave it the same way that you would another drug of abuse, continue to take it over and over again and then have withdrawal when you stop. Um, and part of that is likely due to the fact that you build rapid tolerance to these. And eventually, if you keep taking them repeatedly, there's almost this inbuilt biological mechanism that uh, keeps the drug from having an effect. And so then when you stop, your brain just sort of readjusts to back to normal. Um, but there isn't the same level of, I need to keep taking this um, in order to feel that feeling. Uh, at least not physically, um, uh, but you know, I think that there are other biological and psychological effects of the drug that do lend themselves to helping people sort of recalibrate their their substance use as well as other problematic um, cognitive and behavioral loops that we can get stuck in, whether that be something like a substance use disorder or something like a major depression or anxiety disorder. Mm -hmm. You mentioned like the physical versus like mental aspect of addiction, right? Um, so while psychedelics don't necessarily have this like physical, like I need to either like soothe withdrawal symptoms or I like feel like this physical craving like you would for like a cigarette. Um, there has been like some reports of people with psychedelics who crave kind of that mental like space over and over again. Like I've seen a lot of anecdotal reports of folks saying like, this is who I want to be all the time, you know? And so instead of maybe doing like the work that we see with um, like psychotherapy in combination with psychedelics, some people might just want to keep taking the psychedelic. Do you have any thoughts on like that? Yeah, no, they can produce psychological dependence and, you know, people microdose, people take large doses. Um, 
and you know, there are those types of cases where people are wanting to go back into that mental space repeatedly, and often they do, um, but it over overall in the sort of larger arc of substance use disorder trajectories, it's something that tends to self-correct and not uh, necessarily cause these sort of long-term problems that you see. Uh, you know, it happens, hallucinogen use disorder itself happens at a pretty low prevalence when you're looking at it, although hallucinogen use by and large is on the rise, um, you know, the prevalence of use disorders is pretty low. And that's also including drugs like PCP or MDMA, which can be physiologically habit forming. Um, but yeah, there is a, a real possibility for people just in general to abuse these drugs and to use them uh, repeatedly in ways that both would impair their social functioning um, and potentially, you know, cause them to end up having risky behaviors, could cause problems. Uh, you know, oftentimes though, when you're seeing hallucinogen use disorder, that's tend to tends to happen within a cluster of polysubstance use and potentially other types of mental health conditions, uh, trauma, um, you know, anxiety, depression. Mm -hmm. And so in order to sort of get away from those uh, things, often people will take substances to try to uh, blunt those bad experiences. And uh, yeah, hallucinogens are among them. Yeah. And I have also noted that like the the prevalency of like psychedelic use tends to happen a lot in like younger people and then kind of taper off like over time as people get older. So yeah, and those trends are cultural though and they change over time. And so even with something like cannabis, for instance, you're seeing growing use of cannabis by uh older adults, ages 65 and older, and many of them are now seeing them as potentially medical uses for things like sleep, pain, other types of maladies that they're dealing with. Um, and similarly, you're seeing trends in the US towards greater use of psychedelics among older people, meaning people above the age of 26. Mm -hmm. um, and this is from like epidemiological data showing that you're seeing 40 year old, you know, what you typically consider in the middle age range, um, people using these types of substances. And certainly with the zeitgeist, in the area that it is right now uh, with things like Michael Pollan and other adults of that age range, you know, getting interested in this again, um, that checks out that you would see sort of a, a swinging of the pendulum where uh, more people in that age group would be using it. But yeah, I think over time, these all kind of patterns are shifting one way and another and, you know, nothing is static. So. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so we mentioned the DSM-5 and characterizing um, different use disorders. Substance use is, or substance use disorders, I guess I should say, are typically uh, characterized kind of like as this behavioral disorder, right, by the DSM-5. Um, so like the diagnostics are pretty specific to like how escalating drug use affects, you know, behaviors related to job, family, sociality, um, is there more to substance use disorders than that, do you think, um, like with in terms of the DSM-5 characterization? Well, you know, it gives it gives you about 11 criteria that you need to consider, um, and those are around impaired control of use. So can you stop um, or can you cut back? And if you can't, you know, that's a mark against you, I guess. Um, is it causing is your use causing social problems? Uh, like you said, in terms of your role as a father, or as a you know, uh, employee, you know, are you able to fulfill your social roles and obligations? Um, you know, there's risky use as well. Are you using the drug and then going off and engaging in, you know, un unprotected sex or driving vehicle while you're, you're intoxicated, doing things like that, which obviously can cause problems as well. And then the physical dependence stuff, tolerance, mm -hmm. craving, withdrawal. And so those are, you know, some of the main things that they're looking for. And if you have a couple of these, you know, within the same period of time around your substance use, then you typically consider to have some sort of disorder. And then as that, you know, that number of criteria uh, goes up, then that goes up in severity as well. Um, yeah, I mean, I think this is a fine way to think about substance use disorders, and it's helpful for doctors and for uh, me mental health care providers to be able to figure out what's going on with people. But it's you know, rare for this to happen in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you look at animal models where animals are kind of given 
access to drugs of abuse and then you know if they're in a cage and they're isolated and they can get those those substances then they'll use them um but people are obviously in a much far you know much more complicated environment and so you may grow up with parents who abuse substances and you may see that and you may learn from that in some way um you know you may grow up in an abusive environment where you're you know uh, dealing with trauma and you know these types of factors i think these social factors and influences are really important to consider as well as things like genetics as well as things like uh who are you hanging around with you know who are your peer groups and social networks and how does that influence your use you know similarly we're talking about trends and and changes in drug use um probably when you you know you were coming up you were seeing more vaping than I was because it wasn't around when I was a young, you know, young person. And mm -hmm. now there's, you know, growing number of, of young people vaping. Thankfully, you know, the number of people smoking cigarettes is actually going on the downslope at this point. Um, but yeah, when you have that in your sort of cultural milieu, then all of a sudden, you know, it becomes something that you may engage in. You may have genetic predispositions. Um, and so there's all these different factors to look at. And you know, biopsychosocial models in general, I think, can be helpful for trying to consider all these different range of factors. But yeah, to me, there's a lot more to it than just the criteria that we're mm -hmm. talking about. Yeah, and I think that's really important to bring up, um, especially for people who are not as familiar, I guess, with how diagnostics like work and stuff. And I think it's also just important to note that there's a lot of social determinants that go into our physical and mental health. So I like to talk about it on the podcast. Definitely. <laughs> um, so given all of these different factors that can go into any mental health condition, but also specifically with SUDs, um, what's the thought process, I guess, behind psychedelics for treatment? Well, that's a great question. I, I mean, I'm not sure that it's really been well elaborated. The early history of this actually goes back to uh, Humphrey Osmond, for instance, who is one of the well, he was the person who invented the word psychedelic, mm -hmm. um, but he was a researcher in Saskatchewan, and uh, he thought at the time that you could basically make people hit rock bottom, if you will, by giving them a high dose of these drugs. It would freak them out, and they would say, oh my gosh, what am I doing? I have to stop um, because this is you know, a terrible and scary, bad experience that I'm having. Um, but actually, what he found was contrary to that, and much more like what Bill Wilson, who founded Alcoholics Anonymous, um, thought about when he was starting AA, which is specifically that people were reporting this sort of spiritual type of transformative experience that helped them realize, wow, there's so much more to life than what I've been kind of caught up in, and I need to make a change, uh, and I can do that. And so that was, I think, really important sort of early work um, that was borne out by other research, people like Walter Pankey and, and other early researchers were starting to zero in on using psychedelics in therapy for substance use disorders. And alcoholism was like one of the main targets that was looked at back then. Um, there was a nice paper looking at um, men who had a history of heroin dependence as well and showing pretty good effects even of a single high dose LSD treatment uh, in lowering uh, recidivism to or relapse to heroin use, but you know it wasn't something that I think was really theoretically fleshed out until much later. So in the 2000s, you start to have people coming back to this work and start to think about it from the standpoint of our current models of psychology and psychiatry, trying to understand what's going on. And so we now have these much more sort of multi-layered, multi-level understanding of what's going on. And you know, I, I think going back to what we were just talking about, um, there seems to be things happening across a number of different layers uh, with the psychedelic experiences that people have and the drug effects in the brain um, that help people to sort of recalibrate or to break out of these patterns where they've been trapped. And substance use disorder is definitely one of those where people kind of fall into this pattern over and over again. And so to be able to to break that chain um, using a high dose psychedelic, particularly in people who are already motivated to make a change. So, you know, these are treatment seeking people when we're doing clinical trials. Mm -hmm. um, so they know that there's something off that they want to change. 
they're struggling to make the change. And when you provide supportive behavioral therapy, um, supportive talk therapy beforehand, and then you give people opportunity to have one or a few of these very high dose experiences, um, there does seem to be potential for a great transformative effect in people. Uh, and usually I feel like it's almost unlearning something that they have sort of uh, absorbed in the course of their repeated substance use and kind of giving them a little bit more of a blank slate to, to start back at. Mm -hmm. And especially with that supportive care, uh, then we can encourage people to make those changes and to stick with them and say, you know, this is what you came here for. And now you have the opportunity to make a fresh start. Let's do that. And so, um, yeah, I think the, that all these components, you know, the supportive therapy, um, the very profound uh, psychological experience that the drug can entail, and also the changes that are happening biologically, all seem to play an important role in uh, some of the, you know, initial signals we're seeing of efficacy of treatment for various substance use disorders. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that brings me into kind of my next question of, so you've worked with um, the smoking cessation studies, which there's also been, you know, how you mentioned alcoholism, some heroin studies. Um, so this mechanism of psychedelics, do you think that it would differ with different drug classes or it's more of this umbrella, how you mentioned kind of just like overall, like re not, I don't want to like saying reset, but um, kind of like a reset um, for folks or we, we don't know, um, but work has shown with various types of stimulant use disorder, alcohol use disorder, tobacco use disorder, opioid use disorder, various studies across different places and times that were done using various psychedelics, including LSD and psilocybin, but also ayahuasca. Um, and it's been observed sort of more anecdotally among uh, indigenous and Native American culture, uh, who use uh, peyote as part of their spiritual practice, that for all of these different conditions, um, these classic psychedelics that generally operate as serotonin 2A receptor agonists seem to elicit a profound experience that also seems to help people make changes in their repetitive uh, behavioral patterns, particularly around substance use issues. And that yeah, to me is something that, yeah, we just need to study further because um, people ask me all the time, well, if my son is struggling with, you know, he's trying to get off of his opioid medication, should we give him psilocybin? Should he try ayahuasca? How much should he take? How many times? We have no no idea what the answer to that is. It's It's not something that we can now say, oh, well, this person should have this dose of this drug and that's going to be their best bet to stay clean mm -hmm. or this many doses. Um, I hope that you know, in 10 or 20 years, we might have a better answer. And certainly precision medicine has become, you know, this big hot topic. Um, but to date, we're just having this sort of general understanding that the classic psychedelics like mescaline and psilocybin and LSD and ayahuasca, which contains DMT, that for some reason, those drugs specifically spark off these types of experiences that also, you know, that are often described in similar terms um, and that seem to be helpful specifically for various substance use disorders. Mm -hmm. um, and so in terms of the mechanics and, you know, the, the fine grain details, I think it's going to take some time for us to flesh those out. Um, but it's, it's good because it's, it's an exciting work in progress, I would say. Yeah, there's so much going on in the field with, you know, substance use disorders and with other neuropsychiatric disorders. And, yeah. and I, I like how, you know, right now we're figuring out is this something that it's even going to work right and then going and doing a deep dive into like what i do which is like okay we know there's promise in clinical studies so now why is this happening and can we harness this and figure out a way to make it more accessible or you know stuff like that so it's a very yeah. exciting time <laughs> yeah and it is kind of ass backwards in terms of medications development though because usually <laughs> you would have you know, preclinical work happening on the front end where people would say, oh, we think we identified a mechanism that would be helpful for treating this condition. And so we understand why that is. And so we test that and figure it out and understand the dosing and then move into human studies. Uh, whereas this, because these substances, many of them have been 
naturally occurring around for so long, or even things like LSD and MDMA have been, uh, you know, around for uh, over a century, you know, for MDMA and, and almost that long with uh, LSD, then, you know, you have lots of people using them. We observe anecdotally that there are people having these uh, moments, these transformative experiences, and then we got to reverse engineer that. What the heck is going on here? So yeah, it's pretty it's pretty interesting to look at in that light. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very unique to the psychedelic field, <laughs> and and even like um, like NIH just came out with a new set of guidelines for like grants and stuff for psychedelics. So and it specifically talks about how like for like preclinical stuff, it's like you you can't don't try to model the psychiatric stuff anymore. We just want to know like more like target and circuitry. So they were like. We don't care about your animals anymore. We just want to know what's happening. And I just thought that was pretty interesting, like the guidelines that even they are saying, like, we're doing it backwards. We know. And this is what we want. So, yeah. Yeah. Again, really fascinating and, and just unusual. But uh, that's where we landed. So Yeah, exactly. Um, so talking a little bit about, you know, the mess, the mechanistic aspect. And, and I know you, your answer is you know, we don't know yet, but do you have an inkling of whether it's, or like, what do you think about it being strictly experiential for, you know, producing these profound effects or um, mechanistic, like reductionist view? Um, I always say I'm like literally right in the middle. I think we can't discount people's experiences, but we also can't discount what's going on in the brain. So I was just wondering where you're at on that spectrum. Yeah, well, I think specifically for treating substance use disorders and other psychiatric conditions, uh, including things like depression, anxiety, trauma, um, the subjective effects are an important part of the treatment process. At least that's been my observation after doing this for 11 years with people. And it's been something that other researchers, including people like Osmond in the 1950s were you know, making the same claim. So I don't, you know, I don't think that there's ever going to be a drug that you can engineer that would do the same thing without the same types of subjective effects. However, you know, the, the mechanistic side of the equation and the biology of it is becoming very interesting as you kind of take a deeper dive into, and I know this is some of the work that you're doing and others are working on, you know, um, uh, Javier Gonzalez Maiso, but David Olson and, and Adam Halberstadt and Chuck Nichols and all these really great uh, preclinical researchers and Brian Roth are helping us to understand from the very sort of primal building blocks of the neuron, the receptor, you know, uh, what's going on, the circuits that are involved, as well as the um, work that's happening in human neuroimaging, just looking at something like brain network functional connectivity um, and changes in uh, different parts of the brain's reactivity to certain types of stimuli. So mm -hmm. as we dive into that stuff, we're learning more about how the drugs work, absolutely. Um, and I think that obviously those effects are uh, something that need to happen as well that that are sort of married to the phenomenological effects. Um, so yeah, I, I think seeing it as either or is kind of uh, not a, a really valid approach here. I think, as you said, it's a sort of a both and thing. Mm -hmm. um, and both of these things are happening at the same time, right? So, you know, you're doing this, you're taking this substance is going into the brain, it's, um, you know, binding these serotonin 2A receptors, it's uh, starting this cascade of signaling of these G protein coupled receptors and all this other stuff starts to happen. You know, you start to see uh, brain networks synchronizing or desynchronizing in ways that are unusual when people are not under the influence of the drug. And, you know, that seems to correspond with some of the types of uh, subjective effects that we see, including things like ego dissolution or mystical type experiences, feelings of unity. Mm -hmm. And and then, of course, you know, um, we're also seeing now all this sort of neuroplasticity happening, changes in gene expression. Um, and so I think that's starting to give us a better understanding of the mechanics of all this. You know, certainly when you see changes in uh, brain structure, not just brain function, and then these are persisting changes after one dose of psilocybin, it does make you say, okay, this seems important. You've uh, you've physically altered the structure of the brain in a key region, like the prefrontal cortex, which is important for things like higher order thinking, planning, mm -hmm. and uh, motivational behavior. Um, you know, also when you're looking at stuff like emotional processing areas, like the amygdala, 
and seeing that after you've taken a high dose of these drugs, it's all of a sudden less responsive to certain types of what you might think of as negative emotional stimuli. And how would that impact somebody who has a substance use disorder who would normally have a craving or um, you know, be triggered by some sort of uh, drug-induced cue or drug-related cue and then maybe you know, fall into some sort of relapse uh, behavior, maybe that's making them less re reactive to these types of cues. Um, so yeah, there's, there's a lot of questions I think right now that um, the field is delving into in terms of um, you know, what's happening and how does it work. But yeah, I wouldn't say that either is sort of primary, but that they're sort of both happening as two sides of the same coin. Mm -hmm. uh, and yeah, it's kind of interesting to understand what are the, the links between those two levels of experience, you know, the inner subjective and first person experience a person has and what's going on in their you know, neurons and in their brain networks. Yeah, I like that you refer to it as the first person experience and how, you know, the everything else can kind of be like a third person like referring to it as like a separation of like the body and the mind so i, I like that i might use that <laughs> yeah yeah well ken wilbur i mean he talks about all these types of different approaches of and actually this was really helpful for me when i was studying psychology back in undergraduate but he talked about first person versus third person approaches and talked exactly about what i had ran run into with um you know, these Eastern spiritual traditions that we're talking about meditation, all these different spiritual states is like, these are very much maps that were written in the first person by people exploring these states, and then teaching others to have these, these practices and reach these states. And then you also have Santiago Ramon y Cajal, and you have all these other people that are looking at the third person, they're looking at the brain, they're taking it apart, they're trying to understand it from the outside. And you kind of are looking at the same stuff, but it's two diverging uh, ways of looking at it. And so, yeah, these first versus third person approaches um, are studying the same thing, but they're looking at it from different angles. Yeah, hopefully we can all meet in the middle someday. <laughs> yeah. Um, so moving kind of into talking about, you know, more clinical um, related questions. So if there was say for psilocybin or any other psychedelic, if it was truly implemented into a substance use treatment, do you think that it would be something that would be given like in detox or an inpatient or an outpatient or like, what is like the best, I guess, route as of what we know right now? We don't really have a good answer to that. I mean, so little work has really been done. I mean, Michael Bogenschutz's study that was published last year from NYU using psilocybin for alcohol use disorder I was done outpatient. Our work with smokers has been all outpatient. They are working on, um, you know, implementing in this in more inpatient or detox related uh, settings, especially for um, opioid use disorder. And so we'll get more information, but I think it can be done feasibly in all three of those types of situations. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, taking somebody post detox who's been stabilized medically uh, and, you know, putting them in an opportunity where they can receive a high dose psychedelic therapy um, before release, you know, I think is, is one option that you might see. Um, certainly, if people are going into some sort of residential treatment program, and there's lots of those for addiction rehabilitation, um, you know, that using psychedelics within one of those settings would be very feasible, and probably quite useful. Um, you know, and then what we do outpatient, I think, is is great and is, um, you know, something that I'd love to see implemented at scale, and I hope to, you know, in the next decade. So that's um, really all the opportunities are there. It's just a matter of optimizing and figure out how to deliver it and then also how to make our healthcare system work with this type of long, you know, acting treatment because it is mm -hmm. quite different from what you would normally see. There are people who do surgery that takes hours and hours and you know, sometimes labor and childbirth can, do, you know, be this long protracted process, but, you know, usually your, your therapist visits 15 minutes to make sure that your medications are working the right way. And maybe your, your therapist visit might be 50 minutes to talk about what's going on, but um, having this sort of eight hour dosing session um, is outside the norm. And so because it's unconventional, I think the system is going to have to adjust to accommodate that. Uh, and there's going to have to be changes, you know, both in infrastructure, but also training for 
therapists to handle these types of uh, treatments that are out there that will we hope will be out there. Right, like it's not just a time commitment for the patient, right? It's also a time commitment for the the health professionals as well. Um, so yeah, yeah, definitely. I always thought it would be interesting to do in like a detox environment, because um, you mentioned earlier like cravings that are part of uh, why people relapse the different environmental or physical cues and stuff. So I feel like it would be just really interesting to see a study with it being given at a time point where people are stabilized following drug use. And then if that um, helps alleviate some of that craving that comes after. Yeah. Yeah. Again, that's a great place to sort of insert one of these experiences, you know, should people be able to access them and willing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so a recent study came out looking at some of the smoking cessation um, data from just the patient's like reports and stuff. Mm -hmm. And they looked at the treatment manual as well. And there's um, some interesting findings with like the the integration or the prep, um, like in the manual and how it's like a priming situation. So I was just curious, um, do you think that it's important to give um, a situation with like a priming like that or um, setting like some expectations or some prompts for people before going into this experience? Or do you think it's something that people could do on their own or with a different kind of form of therapy? Well, definitely it can be done with a different kind of, uh, different form of therapy. And I think be equally as effective. Um, it, again, we've done work with smokers and using kind of this manualized cognitive behavioral therapy that seems to work pretty well. We've also seen uh, work done by Michael Bogenschutz using motivational interviewing, motivational enhancement therapies. Um, that seems to work well for alcohol use disorder. Um, but overall, I would say having some sort of therapeutic container is important, including a good relationship with a supportive therapist, counselor, mental health professional, um, because they're the ones who are going to sort of help provide the groundwork, including things like setting treatment goals with the person so that it's not just recreational use. And um, we have done surveys and we've gotten responses from hundreds or thousands of people, um, mainly because in doing this work, we we're finding, oh, this seems to work in the therapeutic setting. And then people will come up to us later and say, hey, I took this for fun in the real world. And I also decided I was just gonna quit smoking because it was gross and I stopped and I never haven't smoked since. And so you do get these anecdotal reports and we have you know, collected and published survey data on that. Um, so there, there seems to be something that's sufficient for some people to get over the hump and make the change even without necessarily having that therapeutic support in place. But I would say if you wanted to optimize the chances of people getting better, then you put them in this sort of uh, treatment setting with a trained uh, therapist, counselor, provider, whatever you want to call it. And then that sort of structure, I think, is going to be your best bet at optimizing the efficacy uh, to get people to, you know, to where they want to go. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, so you have also worked with incarcerated populations. Am mm -hmm. I correct? Yeah. Um, so I was just curious, like, do you think that different populations of folks would benefit from like psychedelic therapy and SUDs? So Specifically, like, do you think psychedelics could have different effects in their produced experiences within an incarcerated population versus a typical study trial participant? Uh, I don't know that the effects or experiences would be all that different, barring social determinant factors that we kind mm -hmm. of talked about um, and potentially just their own sort of mental health history, which I imagine would uh, potentially include a lot more trauma and just difficult life experiences than, you know, the person on the street that you may run into. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Tim Leary did work back in the 1960s, specifically using psilocybin and uh, incarcerated people to try to help reduce recidivism. Uh, the work was kind of inconclusive. It wasn't very rigorous. Things, you know, in the 1960s were methodologically, particularly that work was not methodologically sound, but um, I know there are people who are interested in sort of going back in that direction and um, and that even in Brazil, there are places where um, people who are incarcerated or being released from incarceration are, uh, you know, pro provided with opportunity to have ayahuasca experiences. Mm -hmm. So my sense is that these types of experiences could be hugely beneficial and helpful, 
particularly again with a lot of supportive care. Um, but also, you know, if you're looking, depends on what kind of problem you're trying to tackle, right? Um, if you're, you know, my wife had done a lot of research with uh, populations that, uh, you know, were substance using and without housing. And so if you are able to, you know, help them out, um, for instance, with psychedelics to stop using substances, but they still have no housing, they have no work, and that's not going to be fixed by that type of a drug intervention. And again, these are these other social factors that I think are really important to consider. So if you're having a person who's incarcerated, who's got uh, emotional issues that they need to work through, the psychedelics may help them deal with that. But then going back out into an abusive relationship, you know, having no home, having no job, having, you know, lots of, of difficult life problems, um, those aren't just going to sort of be magically whisked away. And so that requires, I think, a more intensive approach at, you know, is focused on those factors. Mm hmm. And I think that's a really great point of how psychedelics can be useful, but they're not a fix all to a lot of the the things that come with mental health that are outside of the mind. Right. So um, and I think that's something we should talk about a little bit more. Um, we can't create this like perfect world with psychedelics if we're not talking about, you know, the housing issues and the labor issues. You know, um, there's a lot that goes into it that people don't focus as much on so yeah when you're kind of focusing again and we talked about this right from the get-go and doing like individual psychotherapy focusing on the individual you can deal with problems at the individual level but there are systemic structural issues that need to be addressed if you are going to see people kind of working together and not having the types of high levels of suicide uh, high levels of things like mass shootings, high levels of things like, uh, you know, even just um, obesity and other illnesses that are related to diet and and lack of exercise. I mean, so there's so much stuff, I think, you know, that's happening at these systemic structural levels that need to be addressed that can't be fixed by taking a pill um, that, you know, yeah, are really important to consider. Mm -hmm. So that kind of leads me into talking a little bit about the hype of psychedelics and how the hype is contributing into this whole cure-all notion of them. So obviously Johns Hopkins is a very prominent research organization. You guys do a lot of interviews and a lot of great clinical studies and non-clinical stuff as well. Um, do you think that some of like this hype is contributing to the interests of psychedelics and do you have any safety considerations for people who have substance use disorders specifically that may be wanting to try psychedelics outside of like a clinical trial? Yeah, so definitely I think the hype has been a problem. I mean, and I'll just put it to you bluntly because you see in Rolling Stone, for instance, uh, um, you know, headline says, can psychedelics save the world? And it's just such a silly thing, you know, way to pose the question. Um, you know, I think they could be helpful and they can certainly be a useful tool for us to implement in medical and mental health care treatment. But as we were just saying, you know, that's not going to fix the fact that we're, you know, just tearing down rainforests, that we're pumping out pollutants into the environment, you know, that there's climate change, all these other types of things that are happening um, are not going to be impacted by psychedelics. Now, it could motivate people to then go out and try to handle those problems. And I do believe that that is a viable thing to say, but, um, you know, the drugs themselves are not going to be sufficient to deal with all of these, again, larger systemic and structural problems that we're finding ourselves up against right now. Um, and so that's, you know, part of the problem. I think the other big part of the problem is capitalism just in general tends to try to take things, commodify them and sell them. And so that's where you're also seeing the hype machine, because uh, it's all about putting out this sort of sexy narrative about how psychedelics can do this or that. And then also people get involved and they want to invest money and, you know, buy, have corporations that can then, you know, own patents of molecules. And um, yeah, all these people are out there trying to, you know, sell coaching programs for your microdosing. Uh, and so it's, yeah, it, it's become a sort of weird 
conglomeration of uh, both self-help and psychology and, um, you know, guru, spiritual gurus who want to come, you know, try to sell you something. And then uh, corporations are jumping on the bandwagon as well. And so you just have this happening across the board, not to mention the media organizations, which, you know, their job is to sell whatever magazines, newspapers, get clicks, get likes. Mm -hmm. So having more sensational types of coverage is often going to get you that. And so that's why you see these thousands of articles proliferating constantly about whatever it might be with psychedelics. They might help you be a better mom. They might help you have less jitters on your first date. Uh, you know, whatever it is that you see. And yeah, I, I do think that's a problem because it also sort of takes away from the seriousness of actually what the experiences can entail, including really frightening experiences. I think I, I think of this line from uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, like if you're not prepared to you know, see your dead grandmother crawling up your leg with a knife in her mouth, then you're not ready to take these types of high dose treatments. And that's, you know, putting it kind of uh, in funny, in a funny terms, but, you know, these experiences can be really intense. Uh, they can be frightening. Um, and so when people are under the influence, they are certainly at risk of uh, behaving in manners that they normally wouldn't. And they can also do things that are risky or dangerous. So that's an issue. Uh, of concern. And, you know, the other thing is, a lot of this work focuses on what you might consider vulnerable populations, people who are dealing with mental health conditions, depression, trauma, addictions, if these are already people at risk of uh, pretty dangerous outcomes, things like self harm, or, you know, uh, harming others by accident by, for instance, driving while under the influence. So um, overdose, and mm -hmm. so when you have all of those risk factors already, and then you tell people, well, there's these things that might be able to help you, but you can't really get them legally, um, then what you end up with is this landscape where people try to find ways around the system to get that. And it's buyer beware, because who knows what you're getting, what kind of treatment uh, is going to be provided if you go somewhere to get it to some mm -hmm. underground therapist or some sort of retreat center. Um, and even you know, I'm sure well-to-do journalists have written about, oh, well, I went to an underground therapist who was supposed to be giving me MDMA therapy, and then later we found out it was just methamphetamine, and that's why I had such a horrible experience. So it's, um, yeah, it's a complicated landscape, and I think it's just going to get more complicated over the next few years because places like Oregon and Colorado are trying to uh, implement this at scale, although they don't really have a good uh, sort of training pro program and rule book in place as far as I know. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I think it's gonna lead to things like people being taken advantage of, probably harm people being harmed. Uh, and that's unfortunate, but it's, it's hard to avoid just because of the sort of confluence of social factors and the legal status of these drugs and all the stigma around them, which uh, yeah, has kept us uh, in a sort of weird limbo with these, and even with cannabis, if you look at it, because that still remains, uh, you know, federal schedule one level of classification, even though most states you can get, you know, anything from CBD to whole plant cannabis or extracts um, for medical or recreational purposes. So this inconsistency and, in, I guess, labeling about what the drugs are, how their legal status is, um, you know, what they can be used for, is just going to lend itself to confusion and uh, you know the general population and yeah I think that could lead to problems, particularly because. Uh, these classic psychedelics can have really strong psychoactive effects, and we also know that they are potentially risk factors for inducing things like mania or psychotic symptoms in people who have a predisposition to those things mm -hmm. and if you haven't been screened or prepared um, or you know you don't know what you're taking yeah you're at risk of you know bad outcomes which uh, is unfortunate yeah and it's not only the psychedelic or like not psychedelic <laughs> psychiatric potential adverse events too like some prolonged use of psychedelics serotonergic or things like ketamine or mdma been associated with changes in like your blood pressure or with like kidney function and so there's a lot 
um, coming out more and more about some of those physiological adverse events too, which a lot of people that that's never reported in those media articles too. So, um, or just, you know, drug, drug interactions. Well, drug interactions is a big one. And that happens too when people go to, you know, retreat centers where people are not gauging these types of things and asking about what medications are on and asking about pharmacology or understanding pharmacology and, you know, how these drugs can interact, which can cause problems. So yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of potential problems there that should be taken seriously. But um, at the same time, I understand, particularly when people have felt like they've struggled for a long time with a mental health condition, they see these glowing narratives, they don't necessarily see some of the downsides that aren't as publicly reported. And, you know, they feel desperate that they want to try something to help them get better. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I think that's a situation a lot of people find themselves in. And uh, yeah, it's difficult because at this point, the capacity to treat people with psychedelics legally is very low. And I don't see that getting bigger, faster anytime soon, um, maybe in a few years. Um, and yeah. next year, you know, we should see people being able to access MDMA therapy for PTSD. And that's, I think, a, a big win for the field. But psilocybin is going to be still at least a couple of years behind that. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Definitely. So my final question to you, and this is kind of a, a big, broad question, but <laughs> I think it's important to ask. So considering that you're um, one of the leaders kind of right now in the clinical field and doing these trials, is there anything that you would like change about the way psychedelics are being investigated or things that could be done better or like gaps that you want to see addressed specifically in the future? Um, a few a few things that I think would really help move the field along. Um, one would be simply uh, streamlining the regulatory process, and it is a huge headache and it takes a long time. And even somebody who has all the infrastructure, personnel, and help and expertise here at Hopkins that is needed to do this work, it still takes me like 18 months to go from, oh, I have an idea to do a study, to, okay, now we're ready to get started. And that's if you already have the money to do the study. Um, mm -hmm. So that's a long time. And if you look at, for instance, you know, one folder in my computer for that one study that I'm trying to start this year um, has got something ridiculous, like 120 different documents in there, um, different types of, you know, applications have to go to the FDA, that have, things have to go through to the DDA, things have to go to the IRB. And so it is a very complex and long lasting uh, process that you have to go through in order to do anything with humans and psychedelics. Uh, and so if there were a way to uh, mitigate that somewhat, I think it would be helpful. And I think in places like Australia, where I know they're changing the legal status now to approve medical use, you're likely to see a big uptick in their ability to gather in important clinical data um, that we won't be able to replicate in the U.S. because we're still going to be dealing with all those clunky regulations. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think it's easy to say as a scientist, oh, well, more funding would be helpful, but um, we're lucky, actually, because phil uh, philanthropists have been very generous to um, support the work that we're doing, and that's why I have a job right now. But NIH, for years, wouldn't touch this stuff. Uh, and understandably, I mean, you know, they were considered... Uh, drugs of abuse primarily, and they didn't really see where that therapeutic potential lay. Uh, but now that we're getting more and more indicators of this, um, I'm hoping that it will be easier for people to get funding to do the work from uh, organizations like NIH. And I should say also and acknowledge that they have funded work that we're working on now um, using psilocybin to treat tobacco use disorder specifically. So yeah, that you guys is were one of like the first people in like several years, right, to get NIH funding for clinical psychedelics? Yeah, I think we were the, one of the first uh, groups to get, you know, Matt Johnson specifically, but also with Michael Bogenschutz and Peter Hendricks, you know, we got this grant and I forget it was 2020 perhaps to do this work with psilocybin um, clinically, you know, for a therapeutic in indication. And that was the first time that they've done that with the classic psychedelic you know, in decades. Mm -hmm. So it is it is exciting to see the sort of turning of the page a little bit there. Um, and I hope that continues. 
Um, but you know, the work is, uh, it's slow when it doesn't get funding and that's where we've been at for the last 20 or so years, um, with psilocybin. Um, but, and I think the last couple of pieces are, you know, one related to research and the second will be more implementation, but, um, you know, the studies have been largely, um, Caucasian samples. And so if we can get more diversity in the research participants, that would be really helpful for us to understand how these drugs work in different racial and ethnic groups. And then, um, you know, seeing more work with psychedelic assisted therapies among diverse populations, including also indigenous people who've been using them for a long time. It seems like a really good move to me, uh, just in order to get the data, but also to make this accessible to people who don't live in New York City or, you know, um, some of these places that um, can be difficult for regular people to get to if they're not in that vicinity. Um, you know, it's the same with the, uh, you know, the ability to participate can be really hard to do if you got a, you know, a job and you're taking care of kids and you don't, can't just take off a whole day to, you know, lay on a couch for a clinical trial um, and not, nobody, you know, have no money to pay your bills or, you know, get the day off and, um, or, you know, not have anyone to take care of your kids. So that's, I think, a little tough. And these questions then sort of, you know, are going to be transferable to who accesses these treatments if they are eventually approved. Uh, and if insurance is going to cover them is a huge question. And so that's, I think, the other uh, piece of the puzzle that we have to think about kind of projecting into the future that um, we want to make sure that people, if, if this works and then people know that it works, uh, then we have to figure out how do we get it to people and how do we train people to do it safely and, and get it out where it's accessible. And so it's not just something that, um, you know, the elite few are able to access because that's, I think, very antithetical to the idea of psychedelic therapy just in general. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we want it to be accessible for the people who truly are struggling and need new treatment, right? Not just people who can afford it. So, right, exactly. Yeah. Well, I think that is a great place to leave it. Some food for thought for all of our listeners. Um, and I really did appreciate this important discussion with you today. And it was really fun to talk about it. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it as well. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in today for some uh, other reading or just more information on this topic, you can check out uh, psychedelicbrainscience.com for our blog post. Thanks for tuning in, everybody, and we'll catch you next week.